Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello and welcome to the show. Glad to have you as a listener. Don't forget you can be a follower, too. On Twitter, we are Next Track Cast. We try to keep that feed loaded up with interesting retweets and such. We have views about Facebook, so don't look for us there. This is episode number 112 of The Next Track. You know, lately we, we seem to be following this nostalgic path. A lot of our topics have been, uh, gee, remember that thing? Whatever happened to that? And uh, today it's the B-side, which is pretty much non-existent nowadays. We should make a B-side of one of our podcast episodes. <laughs> if we uh, if we distribute it on physical media, that might be uh, something that we would be obliged to do. Uh, you know, and speaking of double-sided things, that's one of the things that I really enjoyed about singles, is that you bought one thing, but you got two songs. <laughs> and I remember as a kid thinking, this is a bargain. I go out and I buy one song, but I actually get two. And I had no concept of what the A side and the B side was. All I knew is that there were two songs on 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 the record. When my the, one of the first forty fives I bought was uh, the Rolling Stones' "Brown Sugar," and it was backed with "Bitch." And I'm like, these are two great songs, and I only paid a buck and a quarter for it. <laughs> it wasn't until later, until I got into radio and started paying attention to singles and things like that, that you realize that well, there is a front side and there is a back side. There's a important side and there's a not so important side uh we're going to talk about b-sides today mostly but we also ought to talk about the actual single itself even though b-sides i think is the thing that we really want to focus on we found some very interesting information about 45s and seven inches and 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 speeds and things like that that are really fascinating that i didn't i was not aware of yeah i started wondering why is this spinning at 45 why is an lp at 33 and a third and, and why was the 78 at 78 there were also some discs at 16 and two-thirds, and I really haven't figured out what uses that yet. So what's interesting is the original 78 was just a random speed. The guy who invented the record player bought a motor, and it turned out that it turned at a little bit faster than 78 RPM, so he decided to cut the music to match the motor. He didn't design a motor to match the speed of the disc. So there was no consideration for like the the how the sound quality or anything. It was just a matter of the motor from his washing machine experiment worked. Maybe it was sort of like a prototype, and he realized it worked, and he didn't want to bother trying to change the speed of the motor. And I guess back then they weren't trying to record entire symphonies, so the fact that it held four or five minutes enough for a song meant that it was acceptable. So the LP comes along. And that is 33 and a third. Now, that is a really weird number, isn't it? I mean, it's a third of 100, but why? how do we get to that number? Right, and it's also not related to 78 in any kind of f factoring way. Right, it's, it's, not, it's not like 39, which is half of 78, or something, it's not a prime number. Well, it turns out that this was Hollywood that brought this into being. In the early days, the soundtrack for movies was put on records, and the records had to play at least 11 minutes, which was a 1,000-foot reel of 35-millimeter film. Not to mention, they had to play in sync. I mean, that's an art all unto itself. Well, it's kind of like DJing, isn't it? Yeah, it's like you DJ to get, to the movie. Sync and you probably, I guess when you changed reels, you changed the record. Yeah, I guess they would have two turntables and two projectors if they were well off. Maybe otherwise they would just have a gap in between the two, and they'd line them up, and they'd flip the switches on both at the same time. So the 78 wasn't long enough, so they invented something that would play for... 
11 minutes, and they did some sort of a ratio, and they increased the size of the disc to 16 inches. So this is bigger than the, the LP that we're familiar with. And they reduced the speed to 33 and a third, and this meant that they could get 11 minutes on a side. Now, obviously, we know that on a 12-inch, you can get easily 20 minutes, probably up to 30 minutes. I remember some 12-inches back in the day that were classical that were getting up to 28, 30 minutes on a side. I, I remember, I think the longest LP I've ever heard was like 32 minutes on a side. And I don't remember the quality of it, but I, I do remember it being amazing that there was that much uh, on the side. It is, that is quite a bit of sound. 20 minutes is about average, I think. So then we get the 45, and why did they pick 45? It's basically a question of sound quality. Since the record turns more quickly, there's more material per inch. I'm sure there's some other reason that came up with the exact number of 45, and I really can't find that. There are a number of conflicting explanations. But it's related to the curvature of the groove. When you think that the groove is a circle, a spiral, and it's always curved, and if the curvature is too tight, then there's going to be distortion. So they had to make it fast enough. They had to have enough material per inch to be able to have decent sound quality. And if you look at a 7-inch 45, you get 495 inches per minute. And a 12-inch 45, you get 1,710 inches per minute. So that's about three times as much. I remember, I believe it was the late 70s, some labels started releasing 45 RPM classical records. It was usually like two 12-inch 45s, and it would be, what, 10, 12 minutes on a side. Would the groove go just as deep as a regular 33 and a third? I mean, you'd still have that, what's it, four inches in the middle? Yeah, it was like a 12-inch single, but it was longer. It was, it was able to hold enough material because of the sound quality. Again, it's not data, but there's more data per second of music. There's more material per second of music, so you're getting more samples as it were. Yeah, there's more stuff there. There's more stuff. There's more stuff to rub up against. Right. So the single is interesting. You, you said you bought the single for the A-side, and I remember that too, the earliest singles that I bought. What was that song by Three Dog Night? Um, Papa Was a Bullfrog, something like that? Oh, Joy to the World. Joy to the World. Joy to the World. That was probably one of the first singles I bought that had I Can Hear You Calling on the B-side. This was 1970, and I'm looking on Discogs, and I, I recognize that Dunhill label it had. Right, ABC Dunhill. Yeah. I can hear you calling. I don't remember that, whether that was a popular track or not. Never heard of it. But I remember having an early Beatles single that was something really good, like the B-side was really excellent. It, this was probably a single from Abbey Road or Let It Be, and the B-side was just as good as the A-side. The thing is about... The Beatles, and probably like a lot of bands back then, is they were under contract to produce two albums a year, and I think it's six or eight singles. And so they would, when they would record, they would not only they would record more songs than they needed for an album, and then they would release the singles early. So, for instance, Penny Lane and Strawberry Fields were recorded were the first things recorded for Sgt. Pepper, but they are not on that album. They were released as singles, and there's a lot of single session stuff like around Paperback Writer and Rain and Revolution and that era. They just, they're just they just singles. They were gathered together on American albums, but in, in UK releases, there was no album until much later when they were gathered into, I think, Past Masters is the one. But anyway, that's just the Beatles as an example. So when they would go in to record these singles, they wouldn't have necessarily a strategy about how they were going to be released. You know, it would be like, oh, that's a good song. Let's release that as a single. Um, 
I know one of my favorite B-sides is You Know My Name, Look Up the Number. Well, that's the B-side to Let It Be. Right. And we played that way more than Let It Be because we didn't really care for Let It Be, but we thought that song was hilarious, which which it is. But it's it seems like it's just sort of a, a fun thing they did for fans, and they decided to, to actually include it on, on the release. I think when the Beatles release stuff, you could pretty much count on both sides being pretty good. There are some cases where the B-side is actually better than the A-side, or just as good as the A-side. I found an interesting list of the five best flip sides of all time. You can't always get what you want was actually a B-side. Think about it. I mean, Honky Tonk Women was an A-side, you know, great track, but you can't always get what you want, which is a truly iconic Stones track, which has been incorrectly used by a certain politician, but we won't go into that. Well, what about the B-side of Hey Jude? Revolution. Really? I did not know that. Yep. Gloria by them was the B-side of Baby Please Don't Go. I don't remember Baby Please Don't Go. Well, that's probably just that blues cover. It's just the Baby Please Don't Go. Oh, that one. Yeah. Okay. That, the one that um, Alvin Lee did that, didn't he? It's one of the themes in the I'm Going Home medley, I guess you'd call it. But yeah, it's in there somewhere. Right, right. Well, it, I'm Going Home is a riff on that song, isn't it? It's got the boogie thing going. The Beach Boys, God Only Knows, was the B-side of Wouldn't It Be Nice? Really? Uh, Wouldn't It Be Nice was really the ultimate Beach Boys A-side, I think. I don't really know God Only Knows. I think God Only Knows was released as an A-side in some places and in other countries. Gene Vincent's Bebopalula was the B-side of Woman Love. See, now Bebopalula, that is a real, I mean, you know the song, right? And it's very sultry. And I can see how people would gravitate to that song because it was kind of dangerous. And it wasn't the, like probably like a lot of B-sides. I know one of the reasons I like B-sides is because you're not supposed to pay much attention to them. But, I mean, in the case of something like Bebopalula or Revolution, they're provocative songs in their own way, and they take on a life of their own that nobody, no A&R guy at the record company uh, imagined that they would. So it's it's very interesting what, what B-sides did become more popular than their A-sides. I Am the Walrus, you mentioned earlier, it was the B-side of Hello, Goodbye. Well, yeah, but I Am the Walrus didn't become popular because it had a, a, a poppy tune like Hello, Goodbye. I Am the Walrus is one of those sort of novelty songs that, that never really represented the Beatles for me. But I guess they did because the Beatles did a lot of novelty songs. You know, think of Yellow Submarine and all that. Well, it also, you know my name, look up the number. That had no chance of charting. It's just yeah. total throwaway. Rain was the B-side to Paperback Writer. Yeah. Rain's a good song. Yeah. I like it's, that. And I like it better than Paperback Writer. Although they have that nice, they both have that same nice crunchy uh, sound that that they were that we were using at the time. Yeah, but I, I think, and you were saying earlier about not playing "Let It Be" because these are the songs that were played so much that you just didn't want to hear them anymore. So you went to the B side because it was something different. It was something that you, that wasn't played out. Basically, you weren't burned on it yet. <laughs> yeah, be, because people, the radio stations weren't playing it, and it's what generally wasn't on an album. So the only place you could hear it was uh, was there. Um, one of my favorite B-sides is the flip side to the Sex Pistols' God Save the Queen. It's a song called I Did You No Wrong. It's not on Nevermind the Bollocks, or it was collected later, but it's not on any of their official releases. It was the B-side of God Save the Queen, and I, I like that song almost better than God Save the Queen, which is almost heresy to say. Well, God Save the Queen is iconic. You can't, you know, it's like Stairway to Heaven in its own way. Except it doesn't have the acoustic guitar intro. And it wasn't 
played to death by radio stations. Yeah. No, in fact, they didn't play it much. Oh, it was banned originally. And, and it didn't last long anyway. So here's an interesting one. You know the Clash song, English Civil War? When Johnny Comes Marching Home. Great song. Do you remember what the B-side to that was? Pressure drop. Very good. Because I've got the single right here. <laughs> You've been going through your single box, haven't you? One of the few singles I still actually have is that one. I said, I'm holding on to that one. And another one I have is Gates of the West backed with Groovy Times. Uh, don't get me started on the Clash singles. You know, the thing about singles... They were big in the 60s, then they kind of went away in the 70s. They came then back. Then they came back in the late 70s. Amaz I mean, Elvis Costello, to try to keep up with the number of singles that he put out was impossible. I remember reading, you know, he'd have these little EPs that came out, these little special recordings and things like that. And England was huge for, the, for those singles. We just didn't have that over here. It's because of indie labels, because it was so much more expensive to press an LP that for them... With with the sort of musical landscape in the UK, with the lack of radio, remember, it was all state-run radio except for the pirate radios off the coast. This was the only way that they could really disseminate new music because recording an LP was expensive in recording time and pressing time and all that. But yeah, it was around that sort of Sex Pistols clash period that singles came back. And then, of course, the 12-inch single came with disco and a lot of indie bands, rock and punk and new wave, did 12-inch singles because of the length. But the 7-inch had that sort of second glory period. Here's an interesting one by Queen, the B-side to We Are the Champions. Uh, it's got to be uh, We Will Rock You. Yeah, probably their most popular song. Which is weird, because that's, that's like a double A-side, because those songs are pretty much played together nowadays. But it also wouldn't be unusual for an artist to have an extended version of a song on the B-side. For instance... Uh, what I Say by Ray Charles is a part one and a part two. The Isley Brothers, uh, Twist and Shout has a part one and part two. Uh, James Brown, Papa's Got a Brand New Bag has a part one and a part two. Usually the part two is like an all instrumental version or, uh, or a jam of the side A version. I tried to find if there were any singles that only had an A side, that only had one side. I remember seeing that, but I couldn't find anything. Do you remember any of those? Well... They might not have been released to consumers, but radio stations would get promo singles. Okay. And, and they came in a lot of different variations. For instance, you would get a single that had one song on it. On one side, it would be stereo. The other side would be mono. That's right. In the early days of stereo. Radio stations that were AM, they didn't care about stereo. And radio stations that were FM that wanted to flaunt the stereo didn't want to play mono versions. So that... That actually went on for a really long time. I have some some promo singles that are stereo and um, and mono, um, a ton of them actually, and that lasted well into the '80s as long as they were releasing singles. And sometimes you would also get, you know, you'd get edited mixes on the B side, you you know, or a, a, an edited whether it was for explicit language or because the song was too long or. Or you would get a dance mix on the other side when 12-inch mixes came out. You'd have the single on one side, and then you'd have like some kind of dance mix on the other side, just either the drums and the rhythm or something like that, so that DJs could you know, put things together. So they came in a, a lot of different ways um, to radio stations. But I'm not really familiar with anything that was sold with only... You mean the same song on both sides as no, sold? No, the, the second side with no groove. Oh, I didn't know about that. It was Didn't they do that originally? Weren't... Or, Originally, albums were just one side? I don't know. 
I don't know either. I do actually, I do actually have something like that, but I wouldn't call it an, an actual single in the same way. Hold on, I have my pile of singles here. I found my single box. I have actually two copies of a song called "Lament" by The Cure in a flexi disc version. Flexi discs only had one side. If you don't remember what flexi discs are, they are flexible, thin vinyl discs that you would get inside a magazine. They would be stapled inside a magazine and they'd be perforated, and you'd pull it apart on the perforation and these are round. I remember some flexi discs were square, and you'd put them on your turntable, and you'd put a couple of coins on the center of them to keep them from sliding because they didn't have enough weight to not slide. And often you'd have to put a coin on your cartridge as well to keep enough weight on it. They were really hard to play, but they, they were sort of bonus freebies. And actually, this is a track that The Cure didn't release on a record for many years after that. It's an early version of a song called Lament. I have two copies if anyone wants to buy one. I haven't checked on Discogs to see how much it's worth. This is, you're, this is an era where they started doing clever things with, with marketing stuff like that. The, the, the cool disc, the cool 45 that I have was put out by the Psychedelic Furs. And it's, I think it's pretty in pink. It's when Talk, Talk, Talk came out. And I think the single is pretty in pink. But the jacket of the 45 had a flexi disc on it. So you played the jacket. And it was essentially a commercial. It almost sounded like a radio commercial. You hear uh, Butler saying, this is the psychedelic furs, buy talk, talk, talk. And you'd hear like snippets of the song. But that was attached to the label of the, uh, to the actual envelope uh, of the 45. And that might have been radio only, but uh, that was a lot. I, I kept that. Yeah, remember, you saw a lot of things that we didn't see in the general public. Of course, right. we could buy some of those as promo copies. And I have a bunch of things that are promo copies with just plain paper sleeves and all that. But it's true that in the 70s, the singles started getting interesting. You got colored singles. I'm holding up here All Stood Still by Ultravox, which is clear vinyl. It might have been the first clear vinyl I had ever seen. This was, I guess, 1980 or so. And here's one that's actually quite unique. It's Bill Nelson, Do You Dream in Color? So this is one of his early singles after he left Bebop Deluxe. It has four songs on it. The A side is in 45 RPM, and the B side has three songs. It's 33 and a third RPM. See, I have never heard of that before. That's just su that's such a Bill Nelson thing to do. <laughs> but that also sounds like a brainstorm somebody had at, the, at, at a label. It's like, hey, we can, we can release a few more songs if we just change the speed on the 45. There were seven inches. It's funny. You refer to seven inches as 45s, but you never refer to a long player as a 33. Here's another Bill Nelson, Birth of Nation on Fire. It's a double 7-inch with a gatefold sleeve. Oh, yeah. So there's four tracks, but they're both yep. at 45. Obviously, the three songs on the 33 are kind of cramped on the 7-inch, but having four songs on two 7-inches, and I have a few of them in there that are double singles. There's a Cure Live thing of four tracks, and there's something else in my pile of singles. I have about 70 or 80 singles and i've looked them up on discogs and some of them actually have some value so i might try to sell some of these things i gave all my a friend of mine had a real jukebox it's about it was an eight foot long jukebox that was a magnificent thing in his house and i had all these all these 45s and i said i, I don't want to be carting these around for the rest of my life because they were in they're in several boxes so i just gave most of them to him and i only kept the things that I thought might be valuable. But looking through it now, with the exception of maybe five or six things that most of them I could just probably throw away. They're just old promo singles, things like that. That Yeah, but the promo singles are rare. There's collectors who might like those. Maybe I'll investigate that and see what I have, what, see what I can do. But 
I don't know. So the real problem with the demise of the B-side is that we can no longer get collections of B-sides. Remember when we'd get, like, a, a band would come out? Black Market Clash is a good example. They came out with this 10-inch uh, EP that had, I don't know, 10 or 12 tracks on it, and then they later came out with a CD version that had more. And these were all the things that were B-sides, and these were, like, songs that you might have heard a few times that you kind of liked, and it's maybe on a college radio station. Wow, that's a Clash song but it's not on any of my albums. Where is it? And then you get all of these B-sides. And, and The Clash was interesting because their early sort of reggae dub stuff was mostly B-sides until Black Market Clash when they grouped a lot of that together. Yeah. They, um, they, re they were releasing a lot of crazy singles too. And that's why the first album wasn't the first album in the United States. And the second album is not the same as the first album in the UK because they gathered together different singles to put on. Like the Beatles albums were notoriously different between the UK releases and the USA releases. And there were even USA releases that weren't made in the UK. We got these collections of CDs. I think the, the Hey Jude album is actually just all, all singles, unlike an album like Revolver or Rubber Soul, which was intentionally an album. A concept album. Yeah, right. Yeah, no, the early ones, it's true, they, they were very different. And that's why, was it just last year, they remastered all of the U.S. releases, maybe two years ago, and re-released them. And, and it's interesting up until about Sgt. Pepper, isn't it? Because by Sgt. Pepper, Revolver Sgt. Pepper, then they were all the same. But those early records, and early Stones records, it was like that too, weren't they? Yeah, different collections for uh, different sides of the Atlantic. So when the CD came along, the B-side was dead, but we got bonus tracks. Yep. We got bonus tracks. And do you remember the CD single? I have a few of those. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, at the radio stations, we would get CD singles all the time. Right. But those are specific for radio. I'm talking about commercial. I don't ever remember buying a CD single. I, I, I think as a consumer, I would... Well, were they cheaper? Were they way cheaper? They were cheaper than a full-size CD. I, I think the only one I have is something by the Daruti column, which has three tracks. And I just bought it as a Daruti Column completist. And it's now available on that Daruti Column album, which was my next track pick last week, The Guitar and Other Machines, those three tracks. But I remember the problem with the CD single was that it was relatively expensive for what it was. And if you're buying a CD, it's got enough room to put a whole album on it. So why not just put a whole album on it? Well, that's what I was thinking from the consumer's point of view. Do I want to get up? Do I want to go to my CD player, play one song, take it out, and put another song in? Oh, it or... wasn't one song, though. It was always two or three or four songs. Okay, two or three songs. <laughs> or would I rather have the full album where there's maybe 14 songs or something and, and you know, sit back and relax for a little while? Uh, I, could, I definitely see how a three or four song CD would be popular among a fraction of the artist fans, but not for everybody because, you know, you, you're thinking, I, I, I don't want 10 minutes of music. I want 45 minutes of music. Yeah, and also if the A-side is a really great song and the others aren't that great, you don't want to put it on repeat in your car. You, you're just going to want to play the one track over and over or maybe two of them if there's four. So the B-side disappeared, and now with streaming, the B-side is dead, isn't it? We just don't have B-sides. There's no, there's no necessity to include a secondary song with the first song there's the because of the physical media there's no obligation to actually even there's no side anymore yeah there's no sides that's funny we used to call them sides yeah someone would record a side back, back i remember reading a book about the blues back in the day and it's like robert johnson went and recorded 43 sides or something right and they had to be done in pairs 
right? You'd have to constantly be thinking in, fa- in factors of two. Yes. Which is interesting. Yeah. It's like I said at the beginning, I'll buy one thing, but I get two songs. So it's a bonus. It's a two for one, yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a bonus. One, one thing I have seen is alternate versions of some songs for download and for streaming. And I'm not talking about these remixes that don't sound anything like the song and, you know, you get a, a specific song and there's 10 remixes and all that. I have a Brad Meldow album where he did Radiohead's Everything in His Right Place and there was an alternate version, which I think was available only if you bought the full album on the iTunes store. So they use, they, so they're being used as incentives to, you know, do other things. Right. But it's not a true B-side. It's like a, it's a bonus track, but it's not a bonus. It's a bonus track only if you buy it from a certain dealer in a certain format, which is, it's really an exclusive. But since it's just an alternate version, you may say, well, I've already got one version and they're both good. You know, a, a jazz ensemble playing two versions of a song, they're going to sound an awful lot alike. And if you're a completist, you want every take Miles Davis did of, of a specific track. But other than that, it's not that interesting. Right. Did you know that the B-side was ineligible to enter the Billboard charts? Huh, no, I did not know that. I found this in an article that's talking about Madonna's third single from Like a Version of Song, Angel. And the article says it was considered her first real failure after a string of groundbreaking pop singles. The B-side, however, was Into the Groove. And it couldn't go in the charts because it was a B-side. Nevertheless, it was named Billboard's dance single of the decade by the end of the 1980s. I think that just goes to show that really nobody at the record company knows exactly how a cut is going to be accepted or rejected by an audience. Um, a lot of people think that radio stations can break a song, but it doesn't work that way. It may have worked that way in the 50s and the 60s, but really, by the time Madonna came along, by the time the 80s came along, radio stations were working hand-in-hand with the marketing departments of, of record labels. We used to work with record weasels, as I used to say. And there was a distinct order of, of songs that would be released from any particular album. There's no way that a single radio station can influence the rest of the country on whether or not they're going to like a song. Now, it occasionally would happen that, you know, a song on that was popular on one coast would f- eventually make its way to the West Coast and vice versa, and you'd have some kind of hits, a lot of the... A lot of the punk music and a lot of the, a lot of the, uh, the the new wave music worked that way, but for the most part, a radio station couldn't really break any songs. A DJ, a single DJ, certainly couldn't do it. Um, it would take uh, it would take a lot more clout than what any single radio station would have. Yet there are anecdotes where apparently there was a sort of a a, a grassroots groundswell that led to certain hits, and here's one. Do you, do you remember Rod Stewart's song, Reason to Believe, from 1971? Oh, sure. Well... Tim Harden's song. Yep. Right. It wasn't very popular. It peaked at 65 on the charts. And as an article I'm reading here says, radio stations started to flip the single and play the B-side, which was... Uh, Rod Stewart. Uh, Maggie May? Yep. No. Yep. <laughs> wow. Wow, that's... that's... So, so um, you may have a, a general manager who's telling you what to play, but sometimes if you flip the record over, you'll get something and you'll break out and and make it. That was his. That was his breakout hit. That absolutely. Really yeah. It was the second highest selling single of 1971. And it's hard to believe that reason to believe would have gotten him anywhere, especially if that was the first single. That's that was weak. There were other songs on that album that were could have led with. Well, that's another thing. How do they choose what song is going to be the single? Because sometimes a single is just not a good song. And 
you know, Bob Dylan's a great example. He's recorded some of his best songs and left them off albums because he didn't like them. Take, for example, his 1983 song, Blind Willie McTell. You could forget about almost everything that Bob Dylan recorded in the 1980s, and it would be made up by that one song. It is one of his most moving, most personal songs. You're talking about the blues musician, Blind Willie McTell. But Dylan didn't like the song, so not only was it not a single, it wasn't even on an album. Yeah, well, the, the groundswell effect it would be difficult to mount because you've really got the record labels and their marketing departments and their advertising and their, uh, you know, their, their product placement and all that kind of thing, and you can't fight against that. It's like, you know, fighting against upstream. Especially when CDs came out, you really didn't have, you know, the opportunity to play, well, here's an optional cut. There just there weren't any optional cuts, and so you might as well stick with what the record companies wanted you to play. You didn't even think of them as singles, did you, when the CD came out? Because was there a concept of singles in radio? It was just a concept of songs by then, wasn't it? Well, you think of it as like as like a product release. It's like each each song from the album was just a, a part of the product that we were trying to sell. So you think of a product release, or you know. But the official releases would be called singles. Here's an interesting Eagle single, Life in the Fast Lane. Any idea what the B-side of that was? Uh, it'd be something from Hotel California. Yep. I don't know. The Last Resort. Oh. Hmm. So The Last Resort is that wistful, melancholy song, yeah. and Life in the Fast Lane is like this ode to cocaine and women. Yeah. So it was really an A-side and a B-side, because if you think about it, it's heads and tails, isn't it? Well, heads and tails would imply that they are equal, but... The single has an A-side, a front-side, and a B-side, a back-side. And we all know various terms for back-side. You know, actually, that did kind of end abruptly. Maybe there is a side two of this podcast somewhere. It's time now for our next track, because I have a feeling we've both selected singles. Kirk, what's up for you? As you can expect, for this week's next track, I went looking for a B-side that is interesting. And I found a B-side that's interesting. It's the only recording this artist made because he really wasn't a musician that much. He was a record producer. He's Daniel Miller, who was a film editor when he recorded it. He founded the record label Mute Records, and he recorded under the name The Normal. And the A-side is TVOD, which is a sort of electro-Devo-esque track. And the B-side is Warm Weatherette, which is such a classic song, especially in the Grace Jones version and so many others. The version that Trent Reznor recorded with Jordy White and Peter Murphy is just astounding. This is one of the great songs of 1978. This truly is. So I will be listening to this later, not on the single because I don't have a record player, but it's certainly on Apple Music. Warm Weatherette by The Normal. Doug, have you got a great B-side? Well, I've mentioned this one already. It is Did You Know Wrong, the B-side to God Save the Queen by the Sex Pistols. Now, it's actually not the original flip side of the original single. The original single was put out by A&M, and the flip side of God Save the Queen was No Feeling. But because the Sex Pistols were only with A&M for about a week, a very limited number of copies of the original single were released, and as a result, it's become one of the most valuable singles of all time. However, once they got signed with Virgin, they released, they re-released God Save the Queen again, this time backed with Did You Know Wrong. It's not collected on any anthologies that I'm aware of. There are several live versions performed by the Sex Pistols of the song. Steve Jones did a version of it on one of his albums, but as far as I know, uh, the only place you can hear this this song is the flip side of, of the single. 
I first heard it about two years after the Sex Pistols broke up. Uh, a friend of mine got a copy of, of the God Save the Queen single, and we were both delighted with the B-side, Did You Know Wrong. It's a straight-ahead rock and roll song. I don't know why they didn't include it on the album. It's as good or better than any song on Nevermind the Bollocks. Uh, I know that um, a couple of songs were added late to that album, so it's possible it, it was originally slated for the album and then got bumped. It is a great song. I've got a link up on the show notes to a YouTube version of it because, as I said, it's not available anywhere, and as far as I know, it's also not available to stream. So I hope you check it out. It's not only a great B-side, but it, it is a great song unto itself. Did You Know Wrong by The Sex Pistols. It's my next track. This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.